Swinet. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. I think we're going to see a lot of emergence of animal scientists and tech companies joining and getting together to try to solve problems together. I cannot make algorithms, but let's find those people who can. I'm an animal scientist and I know pigs, but I think there's a lot of room for collaboration. Swinet Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative sponsors like Elanco's Prevacent, a new PERS Spective. Visit prevacentprrs.us to learn more. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Every pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just all, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to Swine Podcast. My name is Marcel Gonçalves, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsor highlight is about every pig. The truth is precision swine production is not the future, it is the present. Every pig is the intelligent pig health platform. It is a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Request a free 20-minute demonstration at www.everypig.co slash swineit. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Ashley Didecker, uh, and she's going to chat with us about, the, about applied research. So the title of today's episode is Impactful Applied Research in Swine Production. How are you, Dr. Didecker? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Doing great as well. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Uh, we're recording this. It's December 30th. Uh, right after Christmas, uh, getting ready for the New Year. So appreciate so much your time. Yep, we're in that lag of right after Christmas and right before New Year's, where no one has a clue what date it is. <laughs> yes. So uh, it's it's like you said before. It's probably it's a good time to catch up on a few things. So, yep. Exactly. Appreciate that. So first question. Um, Ashley, is if you can share uh, about your story, you know, your career so far, how you got involved with pig production. For those that don't know you, that would be great. Of course, no problem. So I grew up on our family farm in West Central Illinois. For those of you from Illinois, the Henry County, Cambridge area. And my family farms around 2,000 acres of crops and we market around 32,000 head of pigs each year. Um, it is a family farm. My grandfather started it. My father has built it up to what it is today. And thank goodness my brother is taking over it, <laughs> taking it over. Um, we all kind of worked together to show pigs at the county fairs and just kind of knew that pigs and crops were, that was a part of our lives in rural Illinois. I started out my college career at Blackhawk East Junior College, which is a big, um, livestock judging school and from there went to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale where I was as any young bachelor's degree student is I wanted to be pre-vet <laughs> and of course I went through all the pre-vet requisites and 
uh, learn more and more about swine research through Dr. Gary Apgar and helping actually some of the graduate students out with their research studies. And at the same time, got a little bit more involved with my older brother, who was working on his PhD in swine production with Dr. Mike Ellis at the University of Illinois. Started asking him a lot more questions and said, wow, there's other options out there than just being a veterinarian. So that really piqued my interest and decided to take a look in what other technical disciplines are out there. I knew I wanted to work with swine and I knew I wanted to do something in the swine industry. In fact, the swine industry paid for most of my college through um, either Illinois Pork Producers Associations or the Kepi Foundation. I wanted to do what I could to give back. So I wanted to go into the swine industry in some way. And from there, I decided I wanted to take a different route and pursue my PhD in swine well-being. So I went to the University of Illinois with Dr. Janine Salak-Johnson and specifically focused on behavior and immunophysiology, which at the time I thought was completely different, a little bit out of the norm, um, but I was really into it because it was on the animal welfare side. And my goal with working with her was how can I make sure that this is going to be applied research that I can give back to the producer. And so working with her, I got the opportunity to work on auto sort systems as well as sow housing. And that's what my PhD was, was primarily focused on was the well-being of sows either in individual stalls or group pens. And then 2011, it was time for me to finish college and become an adult <laughs> and, and decided looking for jobs. Um, at the time, Murphy Brown had a position available for Assistant Director of Production Research. And so I applied for that position. And under the direction of Dr. Terry Coffey, who is our Chief Science and Technology Officer, was at the time really just establishing Murphy Brown or Smithfield's first full research program. Um, in the past, we had various individuals, whether nutritionists or veterinarians, who are always conducting research, but never a group who is 100% focused on research. So back in 2011, uh, Dr. Terry Coffey initiated this group, and myself and my colleague, Dr. Christina Phillips, were hired on as the two first animal scientists for, um, for Murphy Brown at the time. So I got hired on as Assistant Director of Production Research and been here for eight years now. I'm now the director of research and uh, more responsibilities means more fun, more expanding and different we can get involved in. So it's, that's kind of like my roller coaster ride, but it seems like pigs have always been the common denominator in my personal life, uh, my family life, and my career. So I got to thank the pig. So cool. Yeah, quite quite the career uh, so far. So that's, that's great. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so getting to the topic, um, uh, today's topic, actually, so the word, you know, commercial research and also the word, you know, uh, field trial, sometimes just trial is used with different meanings in different countries or even within a country. Um, so can you define applied large-scale commercial research and uh, maybe touch a little bit on the importance of 
you know, randomization and, and just making sure it's a very well sound experiment, even though it's in uh, commercial conditions. Yeah, of course. And it's funny because I hear commercial research or field trial or trials, I hear them being used interchangeably all the time. And I, I understand perfectly why. Uh, to me, and I can say this is my opinion, that commercial research implies that it's research being conducted in a commercial farm. And by commercial farm, I mean that that is a standard operating, it's a running farm. It is there for production purposes um, with the intent for economic benefit. And what there's pros and cons to that scenario. The pros is that the farm and the management is clearly representative of herds across the U.S. And therefore, the information that comes out of that research can be much more applicable to producers. For example, a lot of the research done at universities may not have the herd sizes or may not have the health impacts that commercial farms do and some of those limitations, but you can get well-designed studies out of those. Some cons to uh, what I would call a commercial research trial is that if you are doing research in a commercial farm, um, sometimes the people who are in those farms aren't necessarily dedicated to research or really just have limited experience in conducting research. And therefore, the study design or the data collection could potentially be flawed. So best case scenario is typically put experienced research personnel in a commercial farm. That way it's a win-win. You can ensure the data integrity there and you also have that really applicable um, commercial farm where you're getting the research out of. So that would be my recommendation from commercial research. But like I hear all the time, hey, we're going to go do a trial. <laughs> and my job in Smithfield is to help is exactly how you said, experimental design, um, sample size or power test to make sure whoever wants to do research, we're not hindering their opportunity to do it, but trying to make it as best as it can be so that we can use it across the whole organization. And so when I hear, hey, we want to do a really small scale trial, and they ask me to do a power test or a sample size calculation, which I would say is my number one takeaway of doing research for any type of good business is that your sample size is by far the most important component to doing a well-run trial. Because in Smithfield, we're running research to make business decisions. And so if I know that I need to see an improvement of 1% in pre-wean mortality, um, then I need to be able to detect that statistical difference and have the power to do so. So that's kind of my side note on there, but I don't want to take the ability of veterinarians or nutritionists or production people from wanting to do their own research because that's great. That's experience with the product or the method that they're testing. But what I typically refer to those as recently have been try it or observational studies, right. um, but not necessarily a research trial. Right. Not Most of the time because it's comparing like one farm to another farm and you just don't have the replication um, to compare because there's so many variations. One farm can get a PERS break yes. and the other farm can be healthy and excuse your entire trial. So we like to call them observations or try it, which still have a lot of benefit to those as well, but probably not what we're going to use to make important business decisions on, but more so for experience.
Right. No, that's you're speaking. I think exactly on the example you just mentioned, the one farm versus the other farm, um, you know, just different initial body weights and all those things that can happen. And, and we're just past Christmas here. If I could ask one thing for Christmas, it would be that we don't hear anymore like, oh, I'm going to compare one farm by the other farm. But we, we still see that a lot around the around the globe, and you know, even in the U.S. as well. And and uh, of course, uh, I'm sure within, you know, very well uh, run companies, that's not so prevalent, but, but that's fairly common everywhere. So I, that would be a wish I have is like, don't do that because you think you're coming up with a conclusion, right? But that's even worse because you might get a wrong, you know, it's worse than not doing. That's, that may be another way to put what you just said is there's things in research that if you do not appropriately, it's going to be worse and you'll waste time and resources. Yep. Now, I don't want to discourage people from doing those types of things. And how we typically do them, which works out really well, is that a veterinarian or a production person will have, say, I'm really interested in this product or this concept or this method, and I want to go ahead and try it. Like, that's perfect. That's great. Go ahead and try it, and I'll hand you a protocol that tells you how many animals you need to do. We'll kind of work together to establish what is the right way to answer this question. Mm-hmm and kind of make it more of a collaboration. And most of the time, these are going to be much smaller scaled studies, almost like pilot trials. Mm-hmm. Even if the experiment is has an appropriate experimental design and you're testing the theory appropriately, but doesn't have the power to answer the question more specifically to like a 1% pre-wean mortality, mm-hmm. um, it still is enough to say, hey, it's worthy of a much larger controlled study. And we kind of use that as we call it our pilot study or um, kind of our first beta test. And it works out really well as long as you have the appropriate experimental design, um, not necessarily the sample size, because I think most of the time when well, people from production or veterinarians or others in the industry will ask, well, how many animals is it going to take to do that? And then I throw out a really large number of like a couple thousand and most people kind of like, I hear that big gulp over the phone. <laughs> um, that's a little more than I thought. And I said, well, what can, you, what can you do? We can work out something that we may not get a business decision answered from this trial, um, but we'll get usable information and experience. Right. And there's a lot of times the first time you'll test something, well, hey, from a practicality standpoint, this method will not work because of this. And then it's dead in the water and no need to continue on with a much larger scale study. And that's kind of what we put behind a pilot study is, if we had to define, and we do, we have a matrix for pilot studies that says, our questions are, is the concept practical and promising? Yes or no? Do you require minimal resources necessary? And by that, I mean small amount of animals, amount of time, labor to do it. And would the conclusion of this pilot study determine if it's worthy of a continued assessment? Mm. So those are the three questions that we'll always ask and saying, do we want to do a pilot study? And if the answer is yes to all three of them, we say, yep, let's go ahead and do it. Because at the end of this, we'll know if it's worthy of moving forward with a much larger study to do. Very interesting. No, that's a very, very nice approach. Uh, just briefly, since you, you, you touched a little bit on, on simple size, from, a, say, a wind-finished study for mortality to pick up a 1% or a few percent in mortality, 
what would be your rule of thumb there um, on sample size? Well, I'd say first and foremost for sample size, it will vary with every single farm. And because we're looking for variation, the sample size is all based off of standard deviation. And if I'm trying to understand what the variation of, let's say, mortality is in one finishing flow that has a continuous PERS problem versus a finishing flow that is much more stable historically, well, then the variation is going to be very different. So in one farm, it could be up to 2,000 animals per treatment to detect a 2% difference in finishing mortality, but in another farm, I may only need 1,000 animals to get the same difference. So first and foremost, before everyone always wants to say, well, that's what a, you know, a couple hundred animals, I said, it depends completely on what flow you're using. So whenever I do a power test, I will, we use pig nose data, I'll retrieve the data from there understand what the history is of that flow to, to see how much variation I can expect and then do a power test for each individual study that we do. So there is no one size fits all when it comes to power tests. I would encourage anyone to make sure that they do a power test for each and every study. Very nice. No, that makes that makes sense. And it's it's for sure it's going to be a few thousand, right? Not a few hundred. That's probably the a big message, uh, I think. Um, for folks too. And even then, the hardest thing I've come across to detect is sow mortality. Hmm. Mortality alone is very difficult to detect statistical differences in, um, but sow mortality is even more of a random event. And so I'm really skeptical when I see studies that say they picked up a difference in sow mortality and they don't have thousands and thousands of um, of sows on the trial. That's the hardest one to find. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, another one that comes to mind is that, that I, I faced during my uh, PhD was the, um, the birth weight, right? To pick up uh, 20, 30 grams on birth weight, you, you need a lot of animals. And sometimes, same thing, you know, difference in birth weight, 20 sows per treatment, oh my gosh, right? Yep, um, exactly. Born Number born alive and birth weight, I, yeah, there's a lot of variation around those, which means you need a lot of numbers to detect those differences. So, yep, I agree completely. Very nice. So the ne next question I have is, um, you know, I believe everyone agree on the importance of research, but still uh, some producers, you know, hesitate on investing money. Um, I do think U.S. is, 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 is very, on average, it's pretty... Uh, um, intense on the research side of things compared to some other countries I work with. So, um, you know, the research department itself is generally a cost center uh, unless uh, someone is doing a contract, some type of contracted research. Um, but how do you calculate the impact and profit across the system? Yep. And that's a great question because it is really hard to track um, the implementation of a trial you completed. But let me take a step back and kind of walk through the full process of how the Smithfield Science and Technology was established. And we kind of came up with a process that so far has been working really well for us. What we decided to do is to try to keep the research as unbiased as possible and focus primarily on production improvement so that we don't do any contract research. 
all the research that we do is based on a need from production or from Smithfield. And so from there, we decided we needed to establish a committee of individuals of various disciplines. So we have meat scientists, uh, geneticists, nutritionists, veterinarians, experts in feed milling. But I'd say the most important members on our research committee are those from production. Mm -hmm. um, they are really the ones who keep us focused on what, because that's what we are. We raise pigs. We're a pork company. Um, what does production need? improvements on, whether it's looking for problem solving or it's new technology. So those individuals, there's about, uh, and it changes, or I think right now we have around 16 members on the committee and we oh, meet wow. coming up this year quarterly. And what these members do is they help us, there's myself and Dr. Christina Phillips are the two directors of production research in Smithfield. They help us establish our research priorities every year. And so that those priorities really drive what our department is focused on throughout the year. Um, we, they help us review experimental design. So we will put together basically the treatments, the trial design, the sample size, and uh, the committee will review that. And then they help identify where the trial should be conducted. So obviously if we're testing vaccines, we need to identify specific sites that have the challenges of the vaccine we're testing. The most importantly, they help us interpret, interpret the results, the implications of those results, and then who those results need to be communicated to throughout the organization. So part of that process is that as a new product or idea or concept is brought to me, we'll use what we call a standardized matrix that helps us prioritize the ideas because at the end of the day, we do have limited research resources. So we do have a couple research sites across the U.S., both sow, nursery, finishing, metabolism units, and wean to finish. And we want to make sure that we are prioritizing all the research concepts or ideas that come up appropriately. So I can share the matrix with you, Marcio, and mm -hmm. show you that the very first question is, does the objective fit Smithfield's priorities? So going back to those annual priorities that we establish every year, kind of a do not pass go. If this is something that doesn't fall in the line with what we need to be working on, we won't, we won't work on it. The next question is, if it's implemented, would capital be necessary, yes or no? If yes, what is the return over invested capital? And if no, what is the return over expense? And on a scale of one to five, um, it'll be a one-to-one, two-to-one, three-to-one, four-to-one, or five-to-one ratio. We'll calculate that based on what previous research says on that product or idea. So we do rely heavily on university research or pilot studies to kind of give us that idea of what should we be expecting here. If the product costs, costs X and we're expecting a 2% improvement in finishing livability, I can calculate that out, but I need some type of scientific evidence to support that. Mm -hmm. the, the third question is, what is the cost reduction or margin generation opportunity? So are we talking about something that impacts just our nursery diet, or is it something that would impact every single pig um, in finishing, which would have a big difference on the overall margin generated from using this concept? So on a scale, again, from one to five, then the fourth question is by far the most subjective, but probably the most important because 
ease of implementation mm-hmm. in a system as big as Missfield, um, we say one is very difficult and five can be completed within normal communication channels. I'll give you an example of something very difficult for us to implement was something when it comes to euthanasia devices. We were trying to improve our methodologies. Mm-hmm. By the time mm-hmm. we conducted all the research on the different products or equipment that was out there, we um, consulted with AASV and National Pork Board, uh, shared all the research with them. We also wanted to make sure that the human safety department was involved, the purchasing department was involved, and then we had to make training videos because you have to train every employee in the company. It takes about two and a half years um, for something to be implemented across our system versus, mm-hmm. I say it's easy, um, if we were to put in some type of a feed product, we can go talk to our Smithfield nutritionist to reformulate some of the diets depending on feed meal capacity, and that's a relatively shorter time period to implement something. So from those three questions, what's the return over expense, what's the potential value to the whole company, and the ease of implementation, we scored out of a total of 15 points. And from that, it really separates out nicely into, is this a high-priority trial for us, or should we be focusing on something else? And most of the time, it's either 12, 13s out of 15, or sometimes we'll have some 10s. And basically, a concept or a trial idea can always be updated with new research, um, but the highest scores will always be the next that go through our research facility. So it really keeps um, myself and my colleague pretty unbiased. We're not the one who controls what products get tested. We let the research and the science speak for itself and the value to Smithfield. Very nice. So I don't know if that answered your, your question, but it, it at least helps us prioritize what work we should be doing but once we come to the end of a trial, we you do always calculate the added benefit being based on that improved performance indicator. So I always suggest if someone's doing research, I, I get it. I, if you're looking at a product that's like a rotavirus vaccine, um, you want to look at reduced scours. But in order for me to calculate an economic return, I have to see either wean weights or reduction in pre-wean mortality to understand what the value is. So even though those are great um, variables to measure, they wouldn't be able to be used from an economic standpoint. So I always encourage those people who are doing those types of studies to make sure you're always looking at variables of economic importance as well. And once we get those results, we'll calculate the potential benefit. So for example, if we see an improvement in one point in average daily gain or 1% in mortality, we can calculate the, what the return over expense would be for our entire company. Um, and then we communicate that across the organization. But I would say the hardest part is tracking the implementation of it, depending on what, what specifically it is that's being implemented. So something easy would be um, a feed additive, because we can track the use of it, track the formulations. We can see who's using it, who's not using it. Uh, cross-fostering practice. Uh, would be very difficult to track to see how well it's being implemented. And and those are really difficult. We've even talked about having reference farms that we would use to kind of confirm, even though we repeat the study numerous times, to feel confident that what we saw the first time is, in fact, repeatable. Um, we, we still want to be sure that what we're pushing out to be implemented is, in fact, going to make that change. So that would be another word of advice is, 
repeatability, repeatability, repeatability. <laughs> yes. Three words. <laughs> yes. I like it. No, that makes total sense. Another one may be a feeder adjustment, right? Very hard to track to uh, the implementation. Yep. Very nice. That's an example of there. We may do um, some controlled research in our research locations, which are, by the way, commercial farms. And so that in those farms, you do have production personnel who comes today every day raising the pigs. And then we have research personnel who we like to say comes to work raising the data. Um, they work side by side. And in those farms, we do our best to control what we can to get a very confident answer. But then it's really important that we repeat them in different farms. So we do have research farms in Iowa, North Carolina, Utah, and we'll try to repeat them to see if we can get the same results over and over again, just to build confidence. Very interesting. That that makes total sense. Um, what would be the top five areas that you've been focusing on uh, lately? So our top five areas and for Smithfield in 2019 research, we're almost at 2020, will be reestablishing these priorities for us. We like to always separate them into short-term and long-term. Mm -hmm. So what is a short-term priority for Smithfield um, would be improving our production processes and management strategies. That's just general production type things. Um, so sow performance, suckling pig performance, wind to market pig performance, anything we can do to improve our pig performance, but primarily uh, finishing mortality is an area of opportunity. Under animal health, managing influenza and PERS, are our top two areas that we're focusing on. And in feed and feeding for short term is improving our feed cost of gain, mycotoxin management, and feed manufacturing. So the three areas for our short term would be feed and feeding, improving production processes, and animal health. For our long term, which we um, really categorize three to five years, we would say their um, brand enhancement, which would fall under like responsible use of antibiotics, pain mitigation strategies. Mm -hmm. um, then we have sow lifetime productivity. We're focusing a lot on gilt development and proper bore exposure and raising our gilts to be productive sows, which is why that's in the three to five year category because that takes a long time to do that research. Mm -hmm. but, most recently, and I'd say the most exciting that we've been focusing on is, is new technology development. Areas and vaccines that can improve animal health um, and trying to improve our production efficiencies and overall improving pig performance. What new technology or innovations can we be using or working with tech companies to develop to help solve some of our problems today? Very nice. Thanks for sharing that. Um, very good. I, I love it. Uh, is there anything else in this topic? Um, Ashley, before we move to the three questions we ask every guest? Um, just to kind of follow up on the top five areas, and I kind of hinted at it, that the new technology development was new for 2019, but mm -hmm. I really mm -hmm. think we're going to see, if I had a crystal ball and shake <laughs> that up and take a look at it, I think we're going to see a lot of emergence of animal scientists and tech companies joining 
and getting together to try to solve problems together. As I am not a computer guru, I cannot make algorithms, <laughs> but let's find those people who can. I'm an animal scientist and I know pigs, but I think there's a lot of room for collaboration in trying to bring swine production into the next century and getting us caught up with some of those other other industries that are out there. And I, to me, that's the most exciting area. I'm so excited to see what new technologies, innovations are going to come up. And, and I hope that we're not shy or, you know, kind of pushing back on embracing some of those. And that's what I'm most eager to see is what's going to come out of the next five years when it comes to technology. That makes total sense. Uh, it's it's definitely the, the the most exciting area that, that you mentioned. I would agree with that too. Uh, and, and I like your predictions. So cool. Very nice. Well, thanks for that. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high health registered purebred swine in the globe having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis Genetic Program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. It is time to our famous three. The three questions, actually, that we ask every guest, every episode, the first one is, what's your favorite swine-related book? Well, I haven't read it yet, but <laughs> I'm going to hold my crystal ball again. <laughs> and I have a book that is sitting on my desk that I just received today. Oh. And it is called Boss Hog, The Legacy of Wendell H. Murphy. Oh, wow. And so I'm excited to read this on the story of Wendell Murphy and how the swine industry started up here on the East Coast. So I'm just predicting that's probably going to be one of my next favorite swine-related books. That's so cool. Yeah, I was not familiar with with that book. I'm just pulling up right now here. Um, Very interesting. And for those, uh, for the few in the audience that are not familiar with Wendell Murphy, he was the founder, right, of uh, Murphy Brown. That it was Murphy Family Farms he started and then joined with Browns of Carolina and it all went from there. But yeah, Wendell Murphy is at the beginning of really the swine production on the East Coast out here and I'm ready to learn a lot more. I don't know enough, which is why I need the book, but I know he started as a, a ag teacher here in North Carolina and took a risk and wanted to make a feed mill and got a loan and started from there. So... Well, and I've ended up becoming a senator. So he has quite the life story, starting out small as an ag teacher and so cool. going from there. Very nice. So, so what would be your favorite book in general outside of pig production? Um, anything by Dan Brown. Mm-hmm. He's a great author and I like his books. But more recently, honestly, I just have time to listen to podcasts on how to speak to toddlers. That's mm-hmm. probably the best thing to do. I got a two-year-old that I'm trying. <laughs> so any self-help books on how to speak to toddlers is what I'm trying to focus on right now. Very nice. So uh, what's the one I was reading that mentioned about that was actually uh, the, uh, never split the difference. It's about negotiation, but it talks about that. <laughs> That's yep. important. So 
in the Dan Brown, it's it's cool. I had a, a year or two of my life that I read three or three books, I think, in a row of him. I really enjoyed it. Yep. Very cool. Well, so, uh, and then the last one is what separates su successful swine professionals from those that are not, in, in your opinion? I'm not sure I've been in the business long enough to have an opinion about this, honestly. Mm -hmm. I guess, but from what I would have to say from those around me, it's the people who stretch themselves to learn the whole business. Um, yeah, I, my background is in swine behavior and stress physiology, but really understanding the entire business from manure management to pig husbandry to ventilation, feed milling, meat science, and meat quality and everything in between just makes you a much more well-versed um, person in the industry. And to me, I guess that's what sticks out of the people in our corporation who really succeed are the ones who stretch themselves the most to learn about the whole business. Very nice. That makes total sense uh, Not to not stay in silos and thinking that you only have to know what, uh, what you learn in school or whatever. Yep. And I would say my boss has told me this for the past eight years. And every time that I think he may be wrong, I get reminded of why he's right. But the three words mm -hmm. to success are in the swine industry is communication, communication, communication. And I got to say, he's right. There's no such thing as over communicating, um, in a, especially in a business and industry. This, this diverse and this this large, you can't over communicate. And so I get reminded of that every once in a while when I do have a miscommunication error or mishap. <laughs> no, that, that makes sense. Uh, so important. Very, very nice. Uh, Dr. Decker, appreciate your time. Thanks so much uh, for uh, sharing that with us today. Yep. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I hope you have a very happy new year. You too. Happy New Year's and Happy New Year's to our audience too. Hey guys and girls, thank you so much for being part of our community as well as thanks for all the great guests that we have had. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I do. To be part of our email list and get some exclusive materials, go to our website www.swineit.com That's swineit.com and subscribe to our email list. Also, we love feedback. So if you use the Apple Podcasts app, please leave us a review. It is much appreciated. We'll talk soon.